morning, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me this morning here on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today, folks, we've got a jam-packed show in store for you. We're going to be talking a lot about the U.S. Open. We're halfway home with a leaderboard full of guys looking uh, to get their first major victory. We'll talk an awful lot about that. Plus, we'll hear memories and thoughts about a Hall of Famer who I don't think gets enough mention among the greatest players of his era, and that's Julius Boros. He won 18 times on tour, including three majors, the 1952 and 1963 U.S. Opens and the 1968 PGA Championship. Julius was contending for major championships well into his 50s, so we're dedicating this show to his memory and his legacy. So you'll hear us talk an awful lot about you know, him over the course of today's show. And I say that we're a jam-packed show today because i got four great guests that I'm really excited to share with you. And first up is uh, going to be Guy Burrows, who is a great player in his own right, oh, by the way, on top of being the son of Hall of Famer Julius Burrows. He was a star player at the University of Iowa back in the 1980s. He won six times out on tour between the PGA Tour, the Web.com Tour at the time, and the Canadian PGA Tour. We'll talk about what it was like growing up watching his dad play out on the PGA Tour. We'll hear about his time at Iowa and uh, getting himself into the winner's circle on his, in his own right, like I say, when Guy joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a, re- I'll get a visit from you know one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Mr. Ben Wright. We'll hear Mr. Wright's thoughts on this year's Open and uh, Aaron Hills. We'll also step back in time to get his thoughts on some of the great U.S. Opens over the last 50 years, his memories of Julius Boros, and a whole lot more when Mr. Wright joins me a little little bit later on in this half hour. Following him, I'll be joined by Cheryl Fink. Cheryl is the Director of Marketing for Bionic Golf Gloves. They have a very unique style to their gloves that helps level off any of the gaps due to the, you know, the natural undulations in our palms and in our fingers, which helps you know for a better grip on the golf club. We'll talk about that and how that can lead to better control of the club and you know how much longer their gloves last, oh, by the way, than uh, their other competitors out in the market. So Cheryl will join me a little bit later on in this hour. Then we'll round out the show with a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Peter, as you know, has joined me on the show here many times, and no one knows the history of golf better than Peter does. I don't even think Google does. I'll get Peter's thoughts on uh, some of the great U.S. Opens of all time, his memories of Julius Burroughs, and uh, you know his favorites to win this week up at Aaron Hills. We'll do, we'll do that and a whole lot more when join, uh, Peter joins me at the top of the next hour. So we've got a ton of great stories and information coming your way on this edition of Next on the T. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next 90 minutes. Next on the tee, you know we are sponsored by the, the folks over at uh, the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our friend Steve Rondonero about all the great things that they're doing. Play the courses the champions play. The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort. The 2017 NCGOA National Course of the Year. Our Pete Dye course hosts the first ever Senior LPGA Championship presented by Old National Bank this July. French Lick's Donald Ross course is looking good as it turns 100 this summer and hosts the Donald Ross Centennial Classic Symmetra Tour event. Book your golf vacation now at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, be sure to go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a place it is and to book your stay. And speaking of great, you've heard us talk about all year about the Bradley Putter Company that, you know, went in you know, a meteoric rise. You want to talk about it, you know, go back to last uh, Black Friday, last, you know, in the last November, to being one of the sensations at the PGA Merchandise Show in January. I've got mine, and boy, is it a beauty. 
We're proud to be partnering with Bradley to help promote their unique line of putters made from burl wood, folks. And these just aren't ornamental putters. People are raving about the look and the feel of the Bradley putter. They are custom made to the shape and the color that you like. Mine is black and yellow to support my Pittsburgh teams, Pittsburgh Penguins, Stanley Cup champions. What an exciting week it has been for, uh, for me and Penguins fans. Go online to bradleyputters.com to see how fantastic this new line of putters really is. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Company. Father's Day weekend, it's here, right? Are you ready? The folks at Bobby Jones are, and they can help you find the perfect gift for dad if you haven't gotten one yet. From their polo shirts to tech shorts and pants to belts, hats, ball markers, money clips, everything dad needs to look great and be organized either on or off the golf course. Go to bobbyjones.com to see their Father's Day gift guide. Plus, while you're in a Bobby Jones frame of mind, go to bobbyjonesclubs.com to see the great line of drivers, fairway woods, and hybrids designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, and that's Mr. Jesse Ortiz. Like his father, Lou, and Bobby Jones himself, Jesse has a passion for the game of golf and golf club designs. You remember his great tri-wood medals from his days at Olimar. Well, now he's putting his creativity and innovative design works you know, out there for you know the Bobby Jones company, creating great golf equipment for them. Check them out online at bobbyjonesclubs.com. And I also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Callaway Golf. Callaway is the fastest-growing golf uh, golf ball brand since 2013, and the Chrome Soft Golf Ball is a major reason why. Chrome Soft is extremely fast, incredibly soft, and unbelievably easy to control, which are why players like Phil Mickelson, Patrick Reed, and Jim Furyk have changed over to the Chrome Soft Golf Ball. You have to be willing to change to get better. Chrome Soft and the new Chrome Soft X are in stores now. See what they can do for you at CallawayGolf.com. Homesoft, it's the ball that changed the ball. And if you were with me a couple of weeks ago, you heard about the great things that Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure are doing. I believe so heavily in the things that Russ and his team are doing that we are proud to be partnering with them now. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you from Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fancona anemia, a horrible disease. You walk side by side with tour players experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience, you'll also receive fantastic gifts, you know, from Caddy for a Cure, including Under Armour logoed apparel and eye packages, eyewear packages as well. A tour-grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and faming, a tin cup ball marker gift set as well. Chef's, you know, cut real jerky. You know, you want to talk about, you know, great beef jerky. They certainly have it. And you'll also get a professional photograph of your day. So go to caddyforacure.com to learn more. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Guy Burroughs. Let me give you a little more background on Guy. He's from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, played his college golf at the University of Iowa, where he, where he was named All Big Ten three times. He shot an Iowa record 66 at the 1985 Big Ten Championship and his 54-hole total of 213 at the Purdue in- Invitational in 1986 rem- remains among the top, uh, their top scores for a 54-hole, uh, you know, 54-hole span. Turned pro in 1986, and in 1989, he won twice on what was then the Web.com Tour at the 1989 Atlanta Classic and the 1991 British Columbia Open. Also on the Web.com Tour, he won the 2001 Tri-Cities Open and the 2003 Lake Erie Charity Classic. On the PGA Tour, he won the 1996 Greater Vancouver Open. 
His father is Hall of Famer Julius Boros. You know, guy went went out there and caddied for him for a time out on tour. His father won 18 times on the PGA Tour, including three majors, the 1952 and 1963 U.S. Opens, the 1968 PGA Championship, and we'll talk a lot about his father throughout today's show, like I mentioned at the top, getting you know, memories from Ben Wright and Peter Kessler a little bit later on in the show. You can now see Guy playing periodically out on the Champions Tour, and I'm excited to have him with me this morning here on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Guy. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. How are you? My pleasure. So, Guy, you know, I, as we kind of look back over, you know, your life and your times in the game, you were born 1964. Your father was in his mid-40s at the time, but he was a force out on tour well into his 50s, winning, like I say, at, at the PGA, uh, winning the PGA Championship in 68 at the age of 48. And he remains the oldest golfer to win a major. Like I say, you know, you look at a guy that was, you know, playing in, you know, right around the top of leaderboards, you know, 53 years old at the 73 U.S. Open. He ended up uh, finished tied for seventh in that tournament. What was it like for you growing up as a Boros and, uh, you know, being around your dad and uh, guys out on the PGA Tour? Yeah, I, I remember back as some of the some of the best times growing up, being able to go in the locker room and seeing the you know, players like Jack Nicholas, Lee Trevino, and players like that. It was it was awful fun. So in the in the late '60s and the early '70s, in my mind, guy, you know that was sort of the golden era on tour, at least in my lifetime. You mentioned. Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Trevino, you had Arnold Palmer and Gary Player, you know, Tony Jacklin, Roberto DiVincenzo, you can go on and on about the guys that were in their heyday back in those days. But did you have an opportunity, you know, to be around those guys, you know, at all and I can like talk, you know, talk to them and, you know, get their perspectives on uh, life on tour? You know, they uh, I was awful young when my dad was just finishing up his career. So, you know, I, I remember, you know, players like Gabe Brewer and things taking me to baseball games if they happened to miss a cut and they were still around. And, you know, Bill Collins and Don Bees were my dad's good friends, a couple of them. And uh, they're just, just good people. You know, they're good men, good golfers. And, uh, they, you know, they made it awful fun for me, too. So, Guy, curious, you know, as I saw, you know, you, you played your college golf at Iowa. You know, what led you and your older brother, Julius Jr., to actually play your college golf all the way up in Iowa? You know, they had, uh, it was a little different. A guy growing up in Florida, the first time I ever saw snow, I think I was 18 years old. But my dad had uh, one of his best friends, who's George Forstner, who uh, was head of a mana refrigeration and Raytheon, and uh, they kind of donated a lot of lot of money to the athletic fund and i think me and my older brother julius and my oldest brother jay did go there too so you know guy you broke through got your first win out on tour at the 1989 atlanta classic up in prince on prince edward island what was it like coming down the stretch for you in that event knowing you had your uh, first opportunity to win a professional tour event you know I, it's so long ago i don't seem to remember it too good but uh you know, I remember it was fun. You know, that's one thing I learned from my dad is uh, to enjoy it. You know, it's um, you know, it's a game of mishits, I believe, and they, he kind of taught me that. It's not very often you hit many really, really good shots all day. So, you know, and, and he always had to try to instill in me to enjoy the game. You know, when it when it stops being fun, it's not worth playing. And, and you've played, you know, extremely well over the course of your career up in Canada, right? You know, what is is there something special about the Canadian air? Is there something special about being north? What what is it about Canada that uh, brought out the best in you? You 
know, I, I don't know. I wish I did know, and I try to bring it with me all the time. But, uh, you know, I, I always enjoyed playing in Canada. such a beautiful country and nice people. I, I've always enjoyed getting a lot of friends up there. So, you know, I, I wish I knew. It, it was funny how maybe the farther away I got from home, the better I played. It never seemed like I played very good in Florida a couple times maybe. But, you know, I, I just enjoyed it up in Canada. Your first win on the regular tour came up there, the 1996 Greater Vancouver Open. You won that tournament by a stroke over Lee Jansen plus a couple of other guys. Talk about how you were able to hold off those three guys and get that win. You know, I remember that one a little better, a little more recent maybe. You know, I, I remember I played really well all week, didn't quite great, which I never seemed to do. You know, it's very spotty, but, you know, I putted real good, hit it pretty good, and I'll always remember the last so was really good par four. I had driver six iron over the water, and, you know, I, I got lucky enough to snuggle it in there about 10 feet, and I knew a two-putt would do it, so, you know, I lagged it up there about two inches short and tapped it in, so that was, uh, you know, definitely the highlight of my career yeah so what's it like after getting you know you're getting that win what's it like after the tournament is over now you know is it, is it a huge sigh of relief that you got you know your first win is it is it you know is it you know more at you know you know euphoria for you know for having one what's it like afterwards well that and and just uh congratulations you get the next week is uh you know it goes on for a couple of weeks i believe and you know, like you're for you right after you win. It, it stuck with me for a while. You know, I've, I've played a lot of golf, and that was one of my goals. So when I went on a tour, and, you know, I achieved it, and it seemed like it was um, a lot easier back then. You know, I didn't have to get the worst I got. So, you know, it was uh, it was pretty easy. And, you know, I wish I loved the game like my dad. And he, uh, he loved to practice, played every day. You know, hit balls every day, play a few holes every day. He just he loved being out on the golf course. Me, I could go a month or two without playing, go fishing for a month and not really miss it too much. But so that was one of the one things I wish I would have had was uh, thank God he blessed me with a little golf talent. And I wish I'd have loved the game a little bit more. You know, and, you know, the mental side of the game, guy, is a lot. I mean, we talk about that very often here you know, on the show. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, coming down the stretch, you talk about, you know, getting into that last hole. Is is it is it hard to, you know, to was it hard for you to to keep the negative thoughts and all of that sort of thing? You talk about having to hit a six iron over trouble in order to win. Did you have trouble blocking all of those negative thoughts out? Or how did you overcome that? Or how were you able to perform in that kind of a situation, knowing the pressure of winning your first tournament? Yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, it was a good thing or bad thing with me, but I, I never really thought too much about golf on the golf course. You know, I'd be looking around, maybe talking to people or doing something. Probably might have been a little better to focus a little more, but, you know, I was real comfortable that week, and, and I had a really good yardage, and, I you know, I hit two, two holes before I hit the same shot, and I hit a good one. So, you know, I was pretty confident with that last one. You know, I just wanted to make sure I got it over the water, and, didn't push it, and you know, I ended just a little bit left. It cut in there very nicely, and it's probably probably one of the best shots I've ever hit in my life, under the most pressure I've ever had. You played in the the 1995 U.S. Open at Shinnecock, won that year by by Corey Pavin. You finished tied for 36 with, among others, guys like Bernard Langer, Raymond Floyd, Curtis Strange, and Hal Sutton. The U.S. Open's going to go back there next year. What do you remember about being a part of the 95 U.S. Open? Well, I remember at 18 had my number. I think I made a triple and two doubles on that hole, wow. and I uh, made I made par the last day. 
So I was happy to make par, and, you know, I'll always – I had a really good time. Good, good, good golf course, I think. I know it's going back there next year. I think I was going to be done trying to qualify for the regular Open, but going back there next year, I probably will give it my last chance next year. But I, I, I enjoyed it. Like I said, a really, really good golf course. I, I played pretty darn well, except for, you know, if it was a 69-hole tournament, I might have had a chance. <laughs> so, so guy you know as we compare eras right the thing that you compare eras you know mostly on you know you look at equipment right the, the status of the golf ball the status of the golf clubs and that sort of thing when you think about you know the, the equipment you played with you know in the 80s you know at iowa and the equipment you played in the 90s out on tour and the equipment you play with now on the on the champions tour how do you how do you rate those three you know decades for the equipment how much better is it now versus what we had then oh it's so far better and better between the metal clubs the ball you know, utility clubs shafts everything and and nowadays the kids you know the kids i play i play the web.com up to like 50 and boy it, it it just was amazing how far these kids hit it and and, and not only long but straight you know, I'd watch them, and it seemed like the more the ball stayed in the air, the straighter it went. So mine never stayed up in the air that long to straighten itself out. That was probably one of my problems too. But you know, and the, and the kids are a lot bigger and stronger, so that's a that's another benefit to it, just like almost every other sport. You know, so but but technology's come a long, long way. So when you look at your own game. For you know how you know how far you drove it you know back in college and like I say back in you know, when you were first starting out on tour because of the advances of the equipment are you hitting it just as far as you ever did? You know I'm probably shorter. I I I always believe I think I'm the only one technology third. You know I think I went to the long drive <laughs> championship maybe two or three times when I was in college. You know I could hit it out there. I had a big big hook hit it out there about. 315, 318, I qualified a couple times, and that was pretty long back then. I never did any good at the the, uh, the long drive championship, but I ended up going, and, you know, now it's, you know, I, I can't, I couldn't hit it. I got to have a hard fairway and downwind to get it over 300 anymore. But fellas that I used to play with, and I used to hit it, you know, 15, 20 yards past, they're hitting it, they're hitting it past me. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> And hadn't helped me very much. I, I would like to go back to persimmon clubs, and uh, you know, I started out with a set of Julius Porus irons, and I remember that sweet spot wasn't very big. If you miss it, it was a miss hit. <laughs> so for for younger players, right? You know, like my son. My son, you know, plays on his high school team. You know, for for the younger players that are you know coming up, you know, in the in the you know early age brackets, maybe in high school now, what's some advice you know that you would give them looking back over the course of your career that you know might help them you know play a little bit better or have a little bit different approach? You know, I've, I've got a son also, a teenager, fifteen. I started a little late in life. He plays on a high school team down in Fort Lauderdale. You know, I try to tell him you know to enjoy the game and have fun. You know, and he actually likes to practice, which is a good thing. You know, he can spend a couple hours on the range, shipping and putting, which is great. And, you know, I really haven't given him, you know, I give him a little hints here and there. They try to keep it fun and playing well. But, you know, I, I think when you're younger, I think the biggest thing is to have them enjoy it. Because their bodies are going to change so much. You, you want to try to get them as good as you can, but, you know, the, the bodies change so much between 14 through 18 that, it, it, you know, the whole swing's probably going to change, so. It's uh, try to try to keep it fun, keep it fun for them. You know, get them in as many tournaments as you can, and 
you know, get them out and try to, you know, try to maybe stay away from a lot of football. And, you know, if you want to concentrate and become a, become a good golfer, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and effort. It's uh, not as easy as I thought it was. My dad made it look awfully easy. So, you know, I never, never understood how he made it look so easy when it seems so hard sometimes. And you talk about, you know, it's great that, you know, your son likes to practice in the chipping and putting piece. That's another thing we talk an awful lot on this show about is, you know, so much of the game is played, right, from 100 yards in, 30 yards in, in and around the greens. You know, talk about, you know, that piece of the game and, you know, how to, you know, get your short game, you know, in, intact and uh, how vital that is to uh, to being a, a good player. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right about that's what scoring's done. You know, if, if you want to become a better golfer and improve your score. That's where you should spend uh, a little more time, you know, from, from 60, 80 yards in. That's where you're going to hit most of your shots. So, you know, it's not as fun as hitting the driver 330, but but if you want to improve your game and your golf score, that's probably a place to be. So, you know, when, you know, one of the places they know that I know that I struggle in so many, you know, of, uh, you know, the you know, we, weekend, uh, we, we Weekend hackers, you know, tend to struggle. And sometimes it's reading the greens. I can't tell you how many times my buddies and I will be on a green and we'll make, you know, we'll hit a putt and we'll go, yeah, I thought it broke the other way. What, what is a, you know, what, what, what's a key to help us read greens better? You know, I wish I knew. I'm still reading them go one way and they're going the other way. I'm, I'm still shocked sometimes. You know, I, it's, uh, you know, what I always think of if you get a little confused, your first look's usually, usually your best look. So if I'm indecided which way it might go, you know, I will probably play it a lot straighter than, you know, if I'm getting like a double read out of it. So, and and then I always thought that uh, the pace is really important in golf too, you know, is, uh, you know, usually if you have good speed on it, you know, foot past the hole, you're usually not going to be too far away. It's hard to misread it that much. And, you know, you mentioned your advice to your son, you know, keeping it fun and how your dad tried to tell that, you know, instill that to you as well. You know, when when you're out there playing, and we all get frustrated on the golf course. We make a bad swing. We have a bad hole, you know, and those sort of – how do you keep it fun out there and keep the right, you know, frame of mind? Oh, I joke a lot with my son. You know, he uh, he hits one of those young kids. He hits it a long way, and I always thought he'd always – you know, teach you to hit it straighter, but you can't teach distance. So I tell him what a good benefit that benefit that is to have on him already. And you know, we joke around a lot. I go, I go, boy, if he hits one a little offline, I think I need a little deep woods off to get that one. So it's uh, <laughs> like I like I say, just you know, try to keep it fun. So were you a talker on the golf course? Did you like to talk to your playing partners and you know talk about anything besides golf as you were kind of you know walking down the fairways and in between shots? Oh, I did. Yeah, I always enjoyed the conversation. Like I said, I try to, you know, golf's a very, believe it or not, it's a very exhausting game when you're, you know, you get such big, big difference in how you spend after the round from, you know, practice rounds to tournaments, you know, practice rounds, you know, then you go out and do whatever, but after, you know, tournaments, you try to concentrate so much, you get pretty wore out. I, uh, so I always enjoyed, you know, trying to have fun. You know, whoever, I, if some people I knew were following or, you know, talk to them kind of along the ropes or, you know, I always enjoyed the guys that fish too or hunted things that I like to do. So, you know, it seemed like we have a lot more in common. Seemed like the, uh, later that I played, uh, you know, web.com and I always tended to walk pretty slow. So, you know, these young kids tend to walk pretty fast. So I didn't get a whole lot of conversation out there. 
So who are some of the guys that you really enjoyed playing, you know, playing around a golf with? You know, I always enjoyed uh, Johnny Morse was one of my best friends, you know, on tour. So, you know, he loved to fish hunt. We're still good friends. So him, Michael Bradley, I always enjoyed, you know, just, just good guys. So, you know, golf's a, golf's a good game. It's uh, the people you get meet around golf are all, you know, usually really good people. So, Guy, you've played in a couple of events so far this season out on the Champions Tour. When, when might we uh, see you back out there again? Yeah, I actually, I was, uh, I was at Des Moines last week. I didn't get in, but I'm going to try to go to Madison next week, try to Monday. I just, you know, I played a couple good, pretty good in a couple of qualifiers, and then I get in the golf tournaments like I never played golf. But, you know, I went out and saw a friend of mine, Kevin Baker, out in California and got a lesson couple months ago and i'm i'm seeing the light i got i got in a lot of bad habits trying to hit the ball a little further so you know i just i just got to try to get my swing back a little bit and try to hit a little straighter and not trying to hit it as far so before we let you go got to get your thoughts on this weekend who do you like uh, at the u.s open who do you think's holding the trophy come sunday evening you know i a lot of the good players are out it looks like it looks like a long hard golf course so yeah, probably I'd, I'd probably go with Ricky Fowler. He, he tends to drive the ball pretty well, and he's playing pretty well. So, you know, he's kind of out front, not not he's tied or one back, I think. So, that'd probably be my pick. I don't care. I don't watch a whole lot of golf, but I usually like to watch the Open and, and the majors. Yeah, I always enjoyed the Open and my dad's favorite favorite tournament. So, you know, it's probably mine too. So, Guy, before we let you go, how can our listeners stay up to date with, you know, what you're doing and how can they follow you, whether it's online or over social media? Well, I've got – the only reason I – social media, I know about it because my kids, the 15-year-old and 17-year-old, they set me up on Instagram and I, Facebook page. I don't check it very much, but, you know, I, 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 I'm still – I'm not too technology savvy, so I got an old phone. It's still way smarter than I'll ever be, so – it's <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for you know being a part of the show today. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. It's been uh, it's been a real treat getting to uh, to spend some time with you this morning. I hope so. Anytime, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right, take care, guy. All the best to you and your you family. Too. That is Guy Burrows and uh, you know his father Julius, who uh, we are dedicating you know this show to today. But you know, great stuff from him, and you know what a you know again what a great player in his own right. Between his time at Iowa and you know his wins out on you know whether it was the the Web dot com tour on the PGA tour, you know you, got, you know something about the air in Canada really you know freed him up to play some really great golf. So hopefully we get to see you know him out uh, on the Champions Tour more frequently, and then like I say, hopefully I get the opportunity to catch up with him uh, again soon he's fantastic all right before i get to my next guest mr ben wright we'll uh take this uh real brief station identification you're listening to next on the t heard around the world on great sites like TuneIn and podbean hear your favorite pga and lpga legends pros and top instructors sharing their stories insights and tips to lower your scores every week here on next on the t now back to you chris and now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mr. Ben Wright. It is always an honor for me to get to spend some time with Mr. Wright. He is a man that I have revered for so many years for the wonderful way he framed up golf for all of us 
on television over the many years that we were privileged to watch and listen to him with his calls. Mr. Wright is also one of the great storytellers of all time, which you can experience for yourself firsthand in his book, Good Bounces and Bad Lies, which you can get on Amazon.com. He's going to forever live in the hearts and minds of golf fans for the wonderful work that he did broadcasting the Masters at CBS. I say this every time he joins me because I don't want anyone to forget that it was Ben Wright who used the phrase, yes, sir, to put an exclamation point on Jack Nicklaus's eagle putt on the 15th hole at the 1986 Masters. His call came two holes in about 20 minutes before Vern Lundquist used that phrase again in conjunction with Mr. Nicklaus's birdie putt on 17. I've had a number of blessings from doing this show, but no privilege has meant more to me than getting to spend as much time as I have with Mr. Ben Wright, and I'm excited that he is back again with me this morning here on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Mr. Wright. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, good morning, Chris. Uh, thank you once again for your fulsome introduction, which is a bit over the top, but uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> So, Mr. Wright, catch this up. Uh, it, what have you been doing since the last time we spoke in late February? Um, I'm actually uh, redoing uh, a golf course I designed called Cliffs Valley at Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Um, we've been, uh, it would be uh, 22 years since we opened on October 2nd. So we closed down on May the 23rd. We had a lot of things to do, as you do after a while with a golf course, for a start. Chris, I put in trees about five or six feet tall. Well, they're now 40 or 50 feet. And we had to take a bunch of them out because uh, they were not allowing uh, the grass to grow anywhere nearby uh, because they were shielding the sun and probably just as important, uh, stopping the air from circulating. So we started by doing that and uh, now we've killed all the greens, gassed them. They were bent grass and we're going to champion Bermuda and um, I'm replacing a couple of bunkers that were taken out largely because uh, of the web.com tour BMW tournament, which I helped to start, and they messed with my golf course horribly. So my developer, Jim Anthony, who no longer owns the Cliffs, um, told him to take a hike after seven years. But um, wow. it's 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 really consuming a lot of my time. I designed a new bunker uh, to replace the old one on the eighth hole, and I'm using uh, one of those things you see on TV from Scotland, a revetted face of the bunker, which um, the Americans call sod wall. And um, it, it, I saw it last Wednesday for the first time and was overjoyed that um, the guys who are doing the job, one of them being uh, Earl Sanders, who does all the work at Augusta National, and my own superintendent, Matt Stevens, who is a, a, a gift from God, 
and they did it so perfectly that uh, a former CEO of the Cliffs, David Cessna, said to me, well, now you've done one with a sod face, you better do them all. <laughs> Which, of course, is not with it was not anywhere within our budget. <laughs> so anyhow, um, and my charity tournaments are doing well, uh, although I shouldn't boast, I suppose, but um, my one in Spartanburg for Meals on Wheels, uh, we're now edging close to eight million net for a one-day wow. event, which is, you know, it's gratifying in my old age. I'll be 85 in September when we reopen my golf course, I hope, weather <laughs> permitting, of course. Mr. Wright, I wanted to get your thoughts. I was just uh, speaking to Guy Burroughs. You know, his father had quite a career winning three majors, including a couple of U.S. Opens and, uh, you know, a PGA as well, plus 18, uh, you know, tournaments out on tour. I, Julius Burroughs is a guy who, who doesn't get enough credit, in, in my mind, for being a great player well into his 50s. You, know, you go back to the, you know, to the late 60s or early 70s. What, I wanted to get your memory. What do you remember about Julius Burroughs? I, I love the man because he was so quiet and unflappable and, I mean, modest to a fault. Uh, he was such a wonderfully calm and collected uh, human being and incapable of anything nasty that I could detect uh, he was just a sweetheart. In the, I mean, and I mean that uh, in a correct sense. He was he was lovely to everyone, and uh, I I miss him greatly. I know Guy, his son, quite well, and liked him similarly. Both rather overweight, probably, and uh, I was for most of my life. So. Uh, I, you know, those were the days when uh, the pros weren't gym rats like they are today. And, of course, it's become an athlete's game now, which it certainly wasn't in my young days. We all had our share of beer bellies and did our share of beer drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and, Mr. Ray, when you look back over the U.S. Opens that you got to be a part of, are there some that stand out, you know, predominantly in your mind, either because of the historical significance of who won that tournament or something special that, you know, just meant a lot to you personally that went on? Well, um, I remember probably the best shot, best single golf shot I ever saw played was played by Jack Nicholas in the 1972 Open at Pebble Beach, which allowed him to win the event. And I shall never forget it because in those days, we scribes were in, allowed inside the ropes. And I was standing almost within touching distance of Mr. Nicholas when he came to the 17th hole, the par three. And he, it, to, on that day, in the final round of the 72 Open, it was played into the teeth of a 
really, really strong wind off the Pacific. And um, I think it played around about 220, but I'm not quite sure whether it was 215 or 220. Anyhow, um, he pulled out a one iron, and my colleague from England with whom I was standing, Pat Ward Thomas, who's a very lovely golf writer who was correspondent of the Guardian newspaper in London, England, he said, the man's mad. He can never get there with that. And I think Nicholas heard it. So anyhow, he goes through his preparation, and he hits his one iron, and it bumps into the flagstick and stayed no more than six inches from the hole. And and I was just absolutely, unbelievably impressed by this. And as a matter of fact, as he uh, came right past us as he walked off the tee, Nicholas winked at Pat Ward Thomas, which indicated to me that he had heard what Pat said, <laughs> and it was absolutely a tour de force, which, of course, I mean, uh, it was such an incredible birdie in the circumstances. Um, people were taking all kinds of scores at that hole, which I later uh, did for probably, oh, God, at least 20 years. Uh, I announced that hole. So uh, it sort of became a part of my life, and I froze almost to death there on numerous occasions. <laughs> uh, Mr. Wright, speaking of Jack Nicholas, there's a story that you recount in your book, Good Bounces and Bad Lies, about the 1973 Ryder Cup. You wrote that you saw a different side of Jack Nicholas's gamemanship in that event. Do you mind telling that story about Nicholas and, and Tom Weiskopf being teamed together and what happened in their match on the first hole? Yes. Um, uh, once again, um, I was on the commentary, the television commentary team, and actually my, my co-commentator, uh, we worked in teams of two, uh, was the great American Bob Tosky. And we had uh, a little time off during the lunch hour just to stretch our legs and maybe grab a sandwich or something. And I wandered to the first nearby, and um, they were going out in the afternoon four-ball matches, and Nicholas and Weisskopf were playing against, I, I think, if memory serves me right, Clive Clark and Eddie Polland who had very little chance on paper against such formidable opposition. And uh, Barbara Nicholas was on the tee, and she was eight months pregnant, and she'd walked the whole 18 holes in the morning. And um, she said to Jack, I may not make it all the way round, uh, with you this afternoon. And Jack said in that rather shrill voice of his, it's going to be a short walk. And I, I couldn't believe what he said. 
<laughs> and and of course the poor Brits, I'm sure, heard it too. And anyhow, uh, the Americans, uh, they were playing again into the teeth of the wind at the par four first hole. It was about, I think, 440. And um, both the Americans uh, hit super drives, super second shots onto the green. And the uh, unfortunately, the Brits were in the spinach somewhere in two, both of them. And... Um, I, as I remember, um, Weisskopf was about 10 feet from the hole, and Nicholas was twice that, I would say, probably. And my, I, I may be off with my distances now, but anyhow, when they got to the green, Nicholas said, and I, of course his voice carried very much, and, and I, once again I was inside the ropes. Uh, and um, I distinctly heard him say, Tom, pick your ball up. And Tom said, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, pick up your ball. Well, Weisskopf was always in awe of Jack Nicholas, and they both came from Columbus, Ohio, as you well know. And um, eventually Weisskopf picked up his ball and didn't mark it. Uh, and, uh, of course, Nicholas promptly hold the path. Uh, and it was really one of the most extraordinary example of Nicholas's incredible ability, and not only physical, but mental ability. His feeling of superiority was quite palpable shall we say so i scampered back to the uh to the booth and uh i told bob tosky the story and uh, i think he was about as astonished as i was but it was uh, something that you will never forget you know no doubt and you know, Mr. Wright, one of the debates that golf fans, you know, love to get into is about, you know, who the greatest player of all time is. And, you know, and, and you know, particularly when, you know, you talk about the debate between Nicholas and, and Tiger Woods. And I've never really understood that debate. You know, I recognize the brilliance of Tiger Woods and marvel at what he's achieved, you know, to this point in his career. And, you know, certainly 14 major victories. He's finished second six times and third four more times. So 24 times in the top three in majors is great in every sense of the word. You know, but Jack Nicklaus won yeah. 18 times. He finished second 19 times and third nine more times. So 46 times in the top three, almost twice as many times, you know, as Tiger did that. I, I just don't understand that it's a debatable subject. The only thing I see that anyone could debate is whether Tiger Woods or Bobby Jones is second best all time. Am I missing something? No, um, you're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, Chris, um, having watched most of Nicholas's incredible 18 victories, I think I saw 15 of them. I'm not sure if that's correct, but it, it was, it'll do very well. And I also watched a heck of a lot more than he should have won. Nicholas should have won 30 majors. I mean, when he lost some of those majors by finishing 
second, third, or fourth, he had given, he gave them away, and and um, there's no to, to my mind, there's no question and there's no debate. Uh, Tiger uh, came across the scene with all the brilliance of a comet, but um, he was never, never going to usurp Nicholas in my mind, um, at least. And, um, you know, and I, I find uh, comparisons odious between age groups, you know, and different decades, etc. And um, But I, I, I cannot look beyond Jack Nicholas in selecting the greatest player who has ever lived. Mr. Wright, I want to go back to this year's Masters. I wanted to get your thoughts on how you feel about, you know, Sergio Garcia finally breaking through and, and getting a major championship. Well, I was really pleased for Sergio. Sergio went through a very bad time. Um, Greg Norman's daughter told him to take a hike, and they were really quite an item. And, uh, you know, we don't realize some of the things that go on in the personal lives of these players. And Sergio went into a tailspin, and he became a sorry crybaby who blamed everything but himself for going, what, 73 events without a major victory. And I became very, very uh, angry with him and, 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 and disillusioned because I'd seen him as a youngster, and he was as pure a striker of the golf ball as I ever saw. I don't think I ever saw anyone who middled the ball uh, off the center of the club, the sweet spot, so many times as did Garcia when he was younger. Anyhow, uh, thankfully, uh, he's he's got a love life that's obviously sitting very well with him, and he's become the, you know, the good guy that was always in lurking, but was well hidden by this complaining and whining and, and so on. And, and I was really happy that he got the monkey off his back. And I'll tell you what, I'll be surprised if by the end of the weekend at Erin Hills, he isn't in the shakeup. You know, he's only, what, three under, I think he is. And, uh, I mean, he's close by uh, with the leaders at seven. And uh, I'm really, I'm really pleased that he's turned his life around because he was far too talented to go through an entire career without a major. And I think he'll win. I think he'll win some more. So to that end, you say you kind of like him because he is sort of lurking back there on the leaderboard. Who do you think ends up tomorrow night holding the U.S. Open trophy? Well, I have a sneaking feeling for Paul Casey. He seems to be totally relaxed. You know, he was once the world number three, and he's fell sadly away from that. But he's been extremely loyal to the U.S. tour, to uh, the, even as far to being excluded 
from the last European Ryder Cup team, uh, rules that they've changed because of his preeminence on the PGA Tour. And I think his comeback yesterday may have been one of the best I've ever seen. I don't know whether you know, but he started on the back nine, as, as you folks call it, the inward half, as I prefer. He started at 10, so um, he uh, bogeyed 12, and then he made a triple bogey, 8 at 14, and bogeyed 15. So he went from leading the championship to 18th place, almost in the blinking of an eye. And to his eternal credit, starting at the 17th and going into the outward half, he made five consecutive birdies to get back to a share of the lead at the end of the day. And that was uh, something that there was, it was a fantastic thing to watch, although I only watched it on TV, of course. So, Mr. Wright, one more before we let you go, but you've got your tournament, the Ben Wright Invitational, coming up later this summer, August 24th to the 26th up at Crystal Mountain. Talk about that great yes, event. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, we we really do, and it is, it is quite a, a, a lovely thing for me because uh, junior golf is the beneficiary, and uh, we all want to help those kids play the game because... The game is a little bit rocky right now, and we need youth more than ever. And so I'm looking forward to a very successful tournament and, and hope the weather cooperates. It usually does. And, uh, and everybody will have uh, terrific fun, which is the whole idea of the exercise. Well, Mr. Wright, it is always such an honor and a privilege for me to get to spend some time with you. I, I don't know a better way for me to spend a Saturday morning than, you know, listening to you share your stories and your insights with us. Thank you so much for coming back and being part of the show again today. It's uh, always such a treat for me. It's a treat for me, Chris, uh, and a privilege to be asked, I might add. Well, I thank you for for thinking so. Mr. Wright, have a great rest of uh, your weekend. I look forward to the opportunity to catch up with you. Hopefully, you'll be back again with me real soon. I hope so. I love it, Chris. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Mr. Wright. That is Mr. Ben Wright. And like I said, it, it just doesn't get any better than getting to spend, you know, a Saturday morning or any time with, uh, with a, a man like Mr. Wright. He's just got so many great stories and he's such a, a pleasure to be around. I hope he comes back and we get the opportunity to have him back on the show again, like I say, very soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Cheryl Fink, I want to give a shout-out to our good friend Randy Manier and the great folks over at the Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Let's hear a word from our, our announcer, Joe Lajanusa, about what a great place that it really is. If you're looking for a great place for your annual golf outing, a weekend golf getaway, or just a round of golf with your buddies, then Salt Creek Golf Retreat is just what you're looking for. 
centrally located in Nashville, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis and west of Cincinnati. This challenging but fair 18-hole golf course appeals to all skill levels, and its scenic views of rolling hills and tree-lined fairways are sure to make golfing memories for years to come. It's owned and operated by former Purdue and New York Giant fullback Randy Manier. Salt Creek Golf Retreat offers stay-and-play packages that include golf and fully furnished one- or two-bedroom condos. After your round, be sure to stop by the 19th Hole Sports Bar and Restaurant for great food, fun, and drinks. Randy and his staff will treat you like family. For more information, log on to saltcreekgolf.com. That's saltcreekgolf.com. Or give them a call at 812-558-5944. 812-558-5944. And start making memories today. Yeah, Randy and his family and uh, staff are outstanding, folks. Both the golf course, the 19th hole, and their condos that they have available on site, they're all great. Check them out online at saltcreekgolf.com. I also want to remind you about our friends over at the at Orange Whip, makers of the Orange Whip Trainer. Folks, if you haven't checked it out yet, you really need to go take a look at it. You know, it's, it's such a great way to loosen up before your round and improve your club head speed and, you know, it's uh, it's just such a great training aid, and I wouldn't say it, folks, if I wasn't using it myself. My father's 73 years old. He plays five days a week. He uses the Orange Whip to loosen up between or before his rounds. It's uh, like I say, it's helping me loosen up and improve uh, improve my club head speed. Take a look at what a great training aid that it is. And again, I wouldn't say it, folks, if I actually wasn't using it myself. Go online to OrangeWhipTrainer.com to see for yourself what a great training aid that it is. And, folks, you know how we like to keep things on the positive side here on Next on the Tee and have a positive approach both in life and on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks over at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought in your memory with the great line of T-shirts and hats that they have. You know, to win any tournament, you got to sink that final putt, right? We wake up every day to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, get better each and every day. Well, have the confidence to push forward towards your dreams with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out online at sinkit.com. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Cheryl Fink. Cheryl started her golf career back in 2000 when she became the marketing manager for Power Built Golf. Bionic became a new division at Heilrich in, uh, in uh, Bradsby in 2001, and she transferred over there in 2003. She initiated the soft launch of their golf club in 2004 at the PGA West Expo, then coordinated their uh, PGA merchandise show events from 2005 to 2011. She is currently the director of marketing, and I'm excited to have Cheryl with me here on Next on the Tee this morning. Hey, Cheryl, Chris Masquerel here. Thanks for coming over and joining me. Hey, Chris. I am so honored to be on your show, especially with people like Ben Wright. That's uh, pretty cool. I appreciate that very much. So, Cheryl, take us back to your days at Power Built, uh, Power Built Golf. How did you get started there, and then what ended up enticing you to, you know, switch divisions, if you will, to go over to Bionic Golf? You know, it's it's funny because I was in the ad business for a long time, and uh, we were the agency for Power Built Golf, and they said, "Hey, we need a uh, marketing director," and I said, "Well, I'd be interested." And they said, well, do you play much golf? I said, well, I do, but I'm not really that good. 
and I was in the mix of at least um, a dozen other people, most of which played a lot of golf, and their handicaps were quite good. And I guess my claim to fame then was, well, I may not play a lot of golf, but I sure know about marketing. And that got me the job at Powerbelt, uh, which uh, was was really kind of cool because, you know, I, I saw the history of the old persimmon woods and, you know, all of the greats way back when, um, you know, that used our clubs. And then, uh, of course, Fuzzy, who happens to be my neighbor. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but... I took the leap to Bionic um, because I, I really liked um, what was going on. And not too many people know the story about how Bionic got started. And since our headquarters are downtown Louisville in the same building where Louisville Slugger wood bats are made, um, there was um, uh, the head of our hockey division, of all things, Bill Clark, uh, was down in the museum, which is on the ground floor of our building. And here's Dr. Jim Kleinert, who is a very well-known um, orthopedic hand surgeon. And Jim had been taking a sabbatical because he had four kids in high school. He wanted to spend some time with them, so he was on the tour. And Bill sees him and goes, hey, you're that famous hand doc. And... Um, Jim is very humble, and in fact, we affectionately call him Dr. Strange Glove because he is very <laughs> passionate about hands and gloves. So um, Bill starts to talk to him about, um, you know, well, we're working on these new hockey gloves, and we could certainly use your expertise. And Jim said, I don't know anything about hockey. Well, Bill was a great salesperson and managed to get Jim on a plane to Canada with him and working with a bunch of NHL players. And that's really the start of Bionic Gloves, because from that point on, um, it went into some of the baseball batting gloves, first baseman's mitts, catcher's mitts. And really the essence of bionic technology is from a man who really understands the anatomy of your hand, you know, he put pads inside the glove in the areas that are low spots, valleys, like are in between your joints, which are the high points, so that when you're gripping a club or a hockey stick or a gardening tool or whatever, your your hand is so much more relaxed and you have a grip without gripping too tightly because if you're like me i put the death grip on my my clubs and that's of course not the right thing to do because it slows your swing speed but um jim's technology is is the real deal and um we recently got a a new patent on cycling glove technology uh, which is coming out later this year, so we're we're pretty excited about that. But that was my journey um, getting to Bionic, and it's been a great ride since then. And to that point, Sherilyn, you mentioned a couple of things that, that I want to get to there. You know, first of all, let's talk about the glove, right? Because as you mentioned, the pads in different places that kind of you know levels out the hand, right? Because we all have you know, undulations yeah. in our hands, you know, particularly at the palm of our hands. We have it throughout the course of our fingers. Talk about, you know, how all of that comes together, with, you know, better and differently with the bionic glove than it does in traditional golf gloves. 
Right. Well, it's it's better grip and control. And you know, traditional golf gloves were were just cut straight um, out of leather. But your hands don't when they're in flexion. Anytime you are grasping a club or or whatever, they you're if you look at your hand and you fo- make a fist and and fold it in, your fingers do not go exactly uh, straight. They curve about five to six degrees, depending on, you know, your type of hand. And the gloves are built with uh, that patented pre-rotated finger design. So right away, you're much more comfortable. And when, like I said before, when you're gripping and you have a tendency to grip too tightly, those pads are helping you have a lighter grip. And they're also like mini shock absorbers. So when you hit the ground by by accident, you know, you're not getting that reverberation back into your hands. But the best thing, I think, is when you're playing in hot climates where you're really sweaty, the layer that's closest to your skin is terry cloth. And we use terry cloth as we get out of the shower to dry off. So it's keeping the hand cool where you sweat the most. So you're able to have a good grip, be comfortable. And as you know, it's a mind game. So if you're, if you feel comfortable from your head to your toe, you're probably going to play better. But, um, that's really the, the essence of bionic technology. And we've got several different golf gloves because we know not everybody is of the same skill level. Uh, the newest one that we've introduced is called the Performance Grip Pro. It only has the layer of terry cloth in those strategic places. But the nice thing about it is everybody has a problem usually with getting a nice fitting glove on your thumb. So what Dr. Jim did was designed um, what he calls dual expansion zones. So if your thumb is a bit longer, or a bit wider, the the thumb gives in those areas so that you have a nice sitting uh, glove on your thumb. And the other thing is natural fit technology on the fingers, which really conforms to your individual shape of your fingers. And again, it all leads to more comfort and a better grip. And, and Cheryl, as you start to mention there, you've got a lot of different variations for your golf clubs. You mentioned the performance grips. You've got, you know, stable grip, relaxed grip, relief grip, aqua grip. Talk about the different styles of golf clubs. That oh, you guys sure. Offer. Um, you know, the stable grip, uh, is, is really our core glove in the line. Um, it has, you know, the multiple layer of, of pads in those strategic places, uh, comes in different colors. Um, it's, it's one that we find that, um, a lot of people get the benefit of, you know, the comfort and the grip. Then we have, um, relief grip, which is more for people that have problems with their hands where they have arthritis and they're either playing with, um, jumbo grips or they, they just have a hard time getting their fingers around the club because of the diameter of the club. So those pads are thicker and deeper because as we age, that natural padding 
uh, kind of goes away. So we're just helping fill in those areas where you need kind of like shoes. You know, when you, you have fallen arches, you have arch supports. So people don't really think about the hand when, when they're, you know, they think about shoes and clubs and balls, but your hands are the only thing that touch the club. Um, and we have a relaxed grip, which is um, um, synthetic back with a leather palm. So you're still getting all the technology, but it's a matter of preference. I know a lot of people are into synthetics these days, um, and that just helps keep the cost down, basically. So that's a, kind of our, uh, our good, better, best, if you will, the relaxed grip being the good. And then there's specialty gloves like Aqua Grip, which are uh, great for playing in, in uh, rainy or inclement weather, uh, where if, if your club gets wet and your hand gets wet, you, the glove gets tackier, so you still maintain your grip. And you know, on the on the ladies' side, Cheryl, for for our female listeners, you know, the information as I was sort of looking at, you know, at your stuff online, the the bionic gloves for women are specific. It says specifically designed for the female hand. Talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, Jim would be the first to tell you because he's operated on so many hands that you know, women's gloves are not just a downsized version of a, of a men's glove. They actually are cut uh, more slender because most women's fingers uh, and hands are, uh, are 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 narrower. So Jim, you know, did a lot of research, and we we looked at a lot of women's hands and uh, made sure that the pattern we have for each of our sizes in the women's line. Um, is, you know, 90% of, of what most women need. And uh, we, we do custom gloves, too, for people that uh, either lose uh, a digit through an accident or, you know, were born that way. Uh, we have quite a few customers that, that come to us all the time. They give us a sketch drawing of, of the outline of their hand with their measurements and we order the gloves, and we don't charge them any extra except for uh, just a shipping. But um, it's um, yeah, we we're all about fit because that's the gloves are the only thing that we do. Cheryl, just a, a couple more before we let you go. But you mentioned a moment ago your Fuzzy Zeller's neighbor. What's it like to live next door to Fuzzy? Oh man, he is a lot of fun. He really is, and. When he had his wolf challenge uh, tournament um, that would be going on uh, at Covered Bridge, which is one of his courses uh, close by, um, he would have people like, you know, John Daly stay with them and Chi-Chi Rodriguez and um, Kevin Costner. And so it was always fun to see, you know, how he, you know, had all these people in. But He's not playing uh, anymore, really. He's into his line of Fuzzy's Vodka, which is doing very well. And wow. he also likes to participate in the Indy racing. You know, Ed Carpenter is his driver uh, in his Indy car. So he's he's kind of, you know, he still loves golf, but he's he's going on to his, his next chapter of what he wants to do. 
So, Cheryl, before we let you go, let our listeners know, how can they get you know, more information about Bionic Gloves, whether that's online or over social media as well? Uh, you know, we are on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, just put in Bionic Gloves, and usually we're the first one to pop up. Um, our website, um, bionicgloves.com, uh, right now, um, uh, ha- and in Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there before I say anything more. But today is the last day to get 30% off of everything on our website uh, with a promo code of June 30, June 30. That will give you 30% off. Um, so, yeah, it's that's – and we're in most stores like Dick's, Golf Galaxy, PGA Tour Superstores. Um, a variety of uh, off-course locations, Edwin Watts, um, you name it, we're, we're there. Well, Cheryl, it's it's certainly been a, a privilege to have you as part of the show today. Bionic Love sound fantastic, and hopefully, you know, we can get you back on, the, you know, the show again sometime, talk about, you know, the updates and the things that you guys are doing. It's uh, It's fantastic having you here, you know, on the football side. It's interesting you talk about the Louisville Slugger Museum and Factory because they're one of our sponsors on the football side on our show Thursday Night Tailgate. Kudos to Ann Jewell and all the folks there that uh, that we work with. But uh, it's great that, you know, you're a part of the same organization and uh, we got to spend some time with you today. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, it's been fun and I would love to be on your show again. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. Uh, have a great weekend. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to that next opportunity to uh, to get to speak with you. Okay. Thanks, Chris. You bet, Cheryl. Thank you. That is Cheryl Fink. Again, you know, she's uh, she's with Bionic Golf and uh, their golf gloves. Check them out online, folks. They look absolutely fantastic, and they've got so many different grip variations that I'm sure that there's one that's going to help you with your golf game and have a better grip on the golf club. So check them out online. Again, Bionic Golf. All right, before I get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, we will do so on the other side of these words about our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. I want to give a shout out to our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. For a fun, interactive experience and the best selection of golf clubs, apparel, and gear for golfers of all levels, check out our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. Whether you're a pro or a beginner, they're your one-stop golf shop for great golf deals on all your golfing needs. You can save yourself a little time by shopping and placing your order online at PGATourSuperstore.com. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. You're listening to Next on the Tee. Heard around the world on great sites like TuneIn and Podbean. Hear your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors sharing their stories, insights and tips to lower your scores every week here on Next on the Tee. Now, back to you, Chris. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to inter- interact with him on his Facebook page and on Twitter. You can find him at Peter Kessler. And as I've said many times, no one knows more about the history of golf than Peter Kessler does. I don't even think Google 
knows as much about the history of golf than Peter does. When you layer on top of that his magical voice and thousands of great stories, and you've got a guy who you know should be hosting his own daily show on the air every day. Oh, by the way, he's writing a book. We'll talk about that here in a minute. So you know when when Peter has been a part of the show, it has absolutely been the best. Whether it's you know he's been on the show for 20 minutes or sometimes you know we've gone you know we've we've indulged with Peter for for much longer than I'm sure than he thought that we were going to because when you listen to him it just doesn't get any better folks it doesn't get any better than Peter Kessler sharing stories and the history of the golf history of golf and I'm so honored that he is back again with me this morning here on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for joining me. How's my buddy? Ah, fantastic. How are you, my friend? I'm doing fine. Ready to go. So, Peter, what what the appetite of our listeners? You know, we've talked. You've got a book sort of underway. Talk about what you're putting together. Well, okay. Thank you for asking me about that. I uh, a very good friend of mine who used to work at the Golf Channel actually got him his job there almost 20 years ago. He had been a high school teacher and had taught a couple of my kids and wanted to work at the Golf Channel and. So we got him an interview, and he got a job there in 1998, probably, and he invented drive, chip, and putt. And he used to go to 140, 150 cities on a bus with all kinds of people, and they were the ones that really got drive, chip, and putt started. And, of course, now you can see the finals during the Masters, and the thing has come a long way. And, of course, he got fired, and they didn't pay him anything for drive, chip, and putt, which was a stunner. And he's an event planner now, and he said to me a few months ago, why don't you write a book imagining if Tiger caught Jack, what tournaments he would win and where he would win them and what shots he would hit. And I said, no, that's stupid. Nobody wants to read fiction. And then we were sending out uh, letters to some clubs offering my services as a guest speaker. And he said, boy, it would be a really good idea if you came out with uh, a book to follow it up with. Maybe you could do 18 chapters on the 18 people you spent the most time with at the Golf Channel, you know, famous people. And I, I said, okay, that's closer. <clears throat> and then the next day, Jim Dodson's new book, Jim's probably the best golf book writer there is, Range Bucket List showed up. And it was just based on a list that he wrote down when he was 13 of things he wanted to do in golf, meet Hogan, break 80, go to Augusta National, same as everybody else's list would have been. And the prologue was sort of personal. It talked about how he went from uh, being a reporter to the point where he was writing, you know, some of the best books that anybody's ever written on golf. And I thought, gee, I could do that. I could sort of tell my personal story and, and weave it in with the people that I've met in the game and stories that I have. And then I read the first chapter, and he's with Glenna Colette Vayer, and she was a great player in the 20s. And at this point, she's in her 80s, and she doesn't want to talk about golf. And they become friends, and she makes some meals, and he visits a lot. And so I thought, well, gee, I can do – I can, you know, I can really take off with this formula – you know, instead of Glenn and Colette Bear, I'll, you know, have it be Tommy Bolt and Arnold Palmer and Lee Trevino and people I spent time with, you know, on the air and off the air. I played 75 rounds of golf with Tommy Bolt. So I called Jimmy Dodson and I said, gee, I just got the book yesterday. And I said, I think I could do a format based on your format. And he said, it's definitely what you should do. He said, you're the only living person who's interviewed everybody of the 20th century. And he said, so you're the only one who can write this book? And he said, yeah. He said, tell your story of how you were the voice of HBO Sports and get the prologue to the point where you get to the Golf Channel. 
And he said, call that how I found my voice. And I said, got it. And he said he would stay awake that night and let me know what titles he came up with. I'm still waiting for that one. That was six weeks ago. And uh, he offered to write the forward. So nobody better to write the forward than Jim Dodson. If you have a famous player do it, somebody else actually writes it and then they sign it. So Dodson is intimately familiar with my work. We spent a lot of time together at the Golf Channel. When he was writing Arnold's autobiography 20 years ago, Arnold used to take him out drinking at night. And Arnold and I were shooting some stuff during the mornings. So the two of them would come in in the morning at 9 o'clock, and we would put Dodson on a couch, and he would start snoring. And Arnold would be fresh as a daisy, and we'd do our interviews. And that's how I got to know Jim Dodson. And so I started writing, and... uh I written the prologue, it's about 15 pages, and I wrote three chapters. I did a chapter on Bolt and Palmer and Byron Nelson. But there's a lot of other characters in each one of the chapters. There's probably six or seven people that I pull into each chapter. It's not just a biography or anything like that. It's stories of me spending time with those players. You know, I played 75 rounds of golf with Tommy Bolt, and I played the last round of golf that he ever played, and we got to the last hole, and it was a par three, and he hit five wood, which was about his best club. He could do any, he could make that club dance. It was really amazing. And when he was 91, he shot a 69 on a 6,450 yard golf course in a wooden club wind, and he hit 17 greens, and the one he missed, he chipped in. He was just two feet off the green, had a 20 foot chip, chipped that one in. And uh, first he looked at it and said, boy, I've never had a shot like this. I said, yeah, only about 10,000 times. And then he'd pick one club, then he'd pretend to pick another club, then he'd pick the first club, and then he'd chip it in and say, woo, tough shot, boy. So I've got a lot of stories about Tommy Bolt, and I know I spent a lot of time with Arnold and his wife, Winnie, who I got to know very well. And so I've got some uh, some things that she revealed to me that, she never talked to anybody else about that um, I've got in there. So I've got it with a, I, I, I've got it at a publisher now who is considering whether or not they will publish my book. And if they'll publish my book, then I'll finish writing the book and we'll get out there. And I think people will really like it. It's got stories, you know, that it's the kind of thing you can hear on my podcast. If you go to peterkessler.com, you can hear the seven or eight shows I've done on my podcast, which if I get the book, deal, I'll probably suspend the podcast because the stories that I'm putting in the podcast are really the stories that belong in the book. So I would probably stop the podcast and just keep the book going and try to finish it in 90 days or so. Uh, I don't know how ambitious that is. Dodson said he only writes for one to three hours a day. He said Hemingway writes for one to three hours a day. Some days you can't do anything and some days you do a little bit more. That's sort of been my schedule. I I did 12 days last Saturday. I had 12 hours. I went from 8 to 8 and then threw out a ton of it the next day because I overwrote. So it's a very interesting process. And it's a different book because it's being written by somebody who has some fame and some celebrity about other people who are well, more famous and have more celebrity instead of it just being, say, a beat writer for the PGA Tour or something like that, writing a book about Byron Nelson, where it's only about Byron and you don't know anything about the writer. So in this case, there'll be 40, 50, 60 characters in it, plus me telling my story, particularly in the prologue of how I got to the point where I could spend time with all these great players. 
And speaking of that, Peter, you know we had Ross Greenberg, the the former president of HBO Sports, on with us on uh, Thursday night on our football show, Thursday Night Tailgate, and and right. uh, you and Ross have a history. You know, and people don't know your story. You mind, you know, giving a little peek about what your story was and how you got started? Well, uh, well, if we use Ross as our kickoff point, you know, I I met Ross probably in 1981, two or three. We both played golf at the same place in Connecticut, and he's maybe a year or two younger than me at the at the most, I guess. And we were both about fives, and he didn't play that much. He was already at HBO Sports as a producer, and. You know, he, he he wasn't a regular on Saturday and Sundays, but we played together from time to time and got to know each other and became friendly. And when I was 35, which would have been in 1987, I woke up and said, I'm not working on Wall Street anymore. And I had worked on Wall Street as a, in, in sales and marketing, and I had done a lot of theater in college and community theater with my daughter. And so I was used to standing up in front of uh people in front of a room comfortable doing that and people had said nice things about my voice so I I went to a voiceover class and uh, went it was a four-hour class and there were nine actresses and me and I spent the whole time going well okay I would spend an hour with her I would spend a weekend with her I would spend a month with her and after a few minutes I realized what they were doing in the class in terms of teaching us what to do how to do a voiceover so I didn't go back, and I started to uh, read out of women's magazines at home and read articles aloud and that sort of stuff. And, and then I ran into Ross Greenberg, and I said, look, I'm trying to you know, do some voiceovers. And he said, well, there's these guys that are making a baseball film, and they need a free read right now if you want to go down and you know just, just to try to get your foot, feet wet. And I said, sure. And... So I went down to this uh, office downtown New York, and uh, Steve Stern and George Roy uh, were the guys who ran this company called Black Canyon Productions, and they had found film from the 1930s and 40s in baseball players' attics because Kodak had given to baseball players the first motion picture, picture cameras that could be used by the public. So Mrs. Babe Ruth would take stuff of Babe at the ballpark and then Babe pushing the daughter. And there was Jackie Robinson in color and Pepper Martin in color and Hank Greenberg and Lou Gehrig in the dugout. And you could tell he was dying. And so I read this script for 10 minutes and, you know, looked at the script and looked at the screen and looked at the script and looked at the screen until I got the timing right. And and they called me back about six months later and said, gee, we like your voice. Would you read the whole thing? We're not offering you the job, but we need to cut the film to a voice. So I said, sure. So I went down again, and I read the thing for an hour, and they didn't pay me again. And another six months went by, and they called me again and said that we'd actually like you to be the narrator. And we got famous people, actors, to read the baseball poetry. We want you to be the regular narrator of the show. And I said, great. And so I went down to, so we went to HBO Sports, who had agreed at this point to produce and show the, the show. And I banged out the voiceover on a Friday afternoon in the spring of 91. And I think the show went on the air July 7th of 91. And by July 9th, it was a big hit. And by July 13th, Ross Greenberg, who was the executive producer of uh, HBO Sports, called me up and, uh, 
by this time we had become more friendly because I was working on his project and our, he and our wives and I were going out to dinner and, and he said, how would you like to be the voice of HBO sports? And I said, well, that would be, you know, unbelievable. And, and it turned out that, you know, that just meant going in a few days a year or, you know, how many times can you say this is a presentation of HBO sports? They only need it once. So you would read whatever documentaries they had and some commercial things and some promotional things. But really, it's four days a year and didn't pay really anything at all. But it turned out that one of the guys that I did a narration for a documentary for for a boxing trilogy called In This Corner liked to play golf. And he asked me if he could come play golf with me. And so I started taking him out to play golf while we were working together. And he worked at HBO. And and I, my stuff I knew about golf started to seep out, championships, origins of the games, players, whatever. And then he later was given the job of hiring all the on-air people for the Golf Channel. So uh, he asked me if I would like to do that, and I said I would. And he said, you know, on Monday maybe you could host a show interviewing the greatest players. I said, that'd be good. And he said, you, Tuesday and Wednesday, you could host a show with the greatest teachers. I said, that'd be good. And he said, on Sunday, you could host a show talking about the week in golf with the finest sports writers in the country. And I said, that sounds like a good job. So he went down to Orlando from New York, where we were both living. And they didn't want to give me the job at first because I hadn't appeared on camera. And he said, look, the guy's done a million speeches and he's done theater in school and he did theater in community theater. It's not no issue. But they said, no, we're going to test his golf knowledge. So I thought, well, that's that'd be great for me because I figured I knew everything there was to know about golf history. At that point, I'd been reading it for 30 years. And so they used to call me at 3 in the morning and ask me golf trivia questions, like who was the first famous female golfer. And they didn't say first female professional golfer. They said first female golf famous golfer. So I said, well, that would be Mary, Queen of Scots, who played golf the day after her husband, Lord Darnley, was murdered. And this went on for weeks. They called at three in the morning and asked me stuff. I knew I knew, I knew it as well as I knew my name. There was no way I could be fooled, pretty much. And, you know, unless they said who finished third in the 1919 Metropolitan Open. I mean, if it was a legitimate golf thing, then I knew the answer. And so finally they asked me about Sam Parks, and Sam Parks uh, is an obscure figure, but he won the 35 Open at Oakmont shooting 75s, and he was the first guy to measure distances from trees to greens and from green to the front of the green to the back of the green. And So he was really the first measurement guy, and he used it at Oakmont, and he figured 75s would win, and 75s won, and he's the guy who shot him. And, and then I finished saying all of that, and then for the first time since I had known this producer, Michael J. Whalen, all he said was, good night. And then the next day they offered me the job, and I started by going down to spend some time with Arnold and hit a wind ball through the windshield of his golf cart, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's a great story. So, Peter, obviously we're sitting here, right? It's U.S. Open weekend, and like I say, you know, when we look at, you know, the history of golf, you know everything. So, in your mind, significant U.S. Opens, you know, through the course of uh, golf history. Significant U.S. Opens? Yeah. I mean, what are some of the most significant U.S. Opens because of either who won or how they won it? Well, that's a pretty long list. Well, this certainly isn't one of them so far. I mean... 
I, you know, I, I look at this leaderboard, and to me it looks like a PGA Tour opposite field event. I mean, this looks like the field that they get for Puerto Rico or for Mexico when there's a regular event being played in the United States. I mean, if you turn the newspaper upside down and you look at the names, then it looks right. Then you see Dustin Johnson and Jason Day and Rory McIlroy and John Rahm and Graham McDowell, even though he's a little past it. But, I mean, I'm just looking at this leaderboard, and this is just absolutely stunning. So, so far, I would not call this a significant watershed moment, you know, particularly since there's no best player to win a major thing. I mean, you know, a lot of people say Ricky Fowler is the best player to never win a major, but he's only won four times. To me, that that's not a resume that screams out, oh, my God, the one thing that's missing is a major. I mean, four wins is not that big a deal. Brad Faxon won eight, Chi-Chi won eight. I mean, you know, Tom Lehman, you know, he who – they make sound like one of the greatest players that ever lived, only won five times on the regular tour. And so four times is not that big a deal. And Lee Westwood with two wins on the PGA Tour, I would not call the best player to never win a major. I'd call him the best player who's played well in majors and didn't win when he had good chances to win lately kind of a thing. I mean, you know, he could have been in the playoff with Rocco and Tiger if he'd made a 10-footer on the last hole. He had a chance to get into the Sink Watson playoff at the Open Championship in 09, but he three-putted the last hole. I mean, he's, you know, had some real problems. So, you know, and Paul Casey's an okay player. He's not a world beater. He's never done anything unbelievable. You know, Kepka, Steve Williams said, has the uh, the greatest sound he's ever heard of a club against a golf ball except for Tiger. So you got to like Kepka's chances, Paul Casey's chances, and Ricky Fowler's chances. I think the guys that you never heard of will start to get nervous and start to make some mistakes. I think the pins will become more hidden. There's some places you can put them there where you just, you know, where it's just not fair. But the course got some rain overnight, and so you've got a situation where the course is going to play wider, so it's going to play softer, so the greens are going to hold better, so the greens won't be quite as fast no matter what they do. So there could be some good scoring today. The one good thing about the 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 field is it's only separated by eight shots from the first guy to the last guy. So somebody like Jordan Spieth, who's seven behind, you know, has a chance to over. You know, he's got 36 holes to pick up seven shots. He's somebody who could do that, while other guys in front of him wilt. I mean, it depends on what obviously Kepka and Fowler and Casey do in terms of letting people back into the golf tournament, but. So far, I'd say this is a snooze fest. I'd say the fairways are too wide. I don't understand why the really good players had so much trouble with it. There wasn't any wind or anything like that. Rory McIlroy said it's set up for him beautifully. So I, uh, you know, I just fail to uh, understand why we're looking at the leaderboard that we're looking at. Um, so this is an insignificant one. I mean, significant ones, I mean, you know, you go to 1913 and Francis Wiemet beating Harry Varden and Ted Ray, who were arguably the two best players at the time. And Harry Varden won six British Opens and a U.S. Open, and he was 43 at the time. And uh, he was still uh, a really good player. He would win one more British Open the next year and finish second in the U.S. Open in 1920 when he was 50. 
a tournament he should have won. There was, there was rain came on the last nine. He three putted a bunch, and by then he had a real bad problem with the yips, and uh, you know, so that was probably the the first really significant U.S. Open because one, it put golf um, on the front page of the sports section. And two, it put an American on the front page of the sports section in golf as a 20-year-old American Francis Wiemet won that tournament. And he never turned pro. He won the amateur the next year after winning the Open. And then he won the amateur again in 31 and became one of the great statesmen in the in the game of golf. And then, you know, you've got Jones in 1923. Uh, that was a big one because it was the first U.S. Open he won in a playoff against Bobby Crookshank, and he had to hit a one iron in the playoff to the last hole and knocked it to about six feet, and he actually two-putted. They always show it on the Golf Channel as him making a six-footer, but he actually missed the six-footer, but never mind. But that was a big turning point, and he won 13 of the last 21 majors in which he played, and uh, of course, 39 at, in uh, Philadelphia was big when Byron Nelson and ended up winning in a playoff that Snead should have won in regulation but made an eight on the final hole. And then 53, Hogan, of course, winning uh, the Open, actually 50-51 and 53, Hogan's Open. So there have been a lot of incredibly significant ones in that, you know, and you, you look at Arnold, winning in 1960 at a time that Tom Weiskopf said that Jack Nicklaus was already the best player in the world in 1960. And uh, and Arnold then lost three U.S. Opens in playoffs and then had a chance to win three or four other U.S. Opens. So all of those were significant. So it's been, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's the national championship, and it's generally been defined by narrow fairways and high rough and tough greens so you think of oakmont and you think of shinnecock and you think of winged foot and you think of baltistral before reese jones got his hands on it and, and mucked it up a little bit um but these these experiments that they're doing you know chambers bay was you know a pretty big failure the greens were terrible people couldn't get around um looks like people are having trouble getting around this golf course you know, fairways twice as wide as normal is uh, very unusual because putting the ball in position was always, you know, supposed to be the key thing that you do at a U.S. Open. And here you've got 60 yards to do it, which makes it totally inexplicable why the best players and the fee of the best players of their time are no longer in the field. It just uh, absolutely is stupefying. And I'm, I'm hoping that today shakes out some of the names that we're not familiar with and solidify some that we are familiar with and that we see a nice charge from uh, either Matt Kuchar, but he's a top 10 guy. He's not a guy who wins major championships. You know, but if Jordan Spieth, who's going out early, can squeeze out a little 65 today and get himself to six or seven under, you know, and then all of a sudden you've got a tournament going into tomorrow with one of the best young players of his time, and that would that would right this ship. But right now, I think they've got a tough go. I think the telecasts have been fairly deplorable. The uh, announcing has been pretty much uniformly across the board awful. I'm having trouble understanding Darren Clark. Um, that young woman, Holly Saunders, can't think of a blessed thing to say about anything at any time. Um, I 
it's uh, it's it's been very difficult, and 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 not having the superstars at the top of the leaderboard makes it a really tough job for Fox, you know, who are not used to as a group going back to previous opens and going over history, and you know, they they don't have somebody like Nick Faldo who can take you back and talk about this open and that open, so. I think it's going to be uh, an interesting day today if we don't get some. Uh, if Kepker, Fowler, and Casey play good, then I'm going to say okay that this is okay. But this is not what I think any of us were looking for. We were looking for Rory and Dustin and Jason and Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth to you know to to assert themselves in our national championship, and so it's so far disappointing. And, you know, you touched on something, Peter, that I wanted to get your thoughts on, just you, you, the Fox telecast, right? You, you, as you mentioned, there's no one like Faldo that can kind of reach back into golf history and try to tie some of this stuff together. Is this is this sort of a case of a network, you know, that we're, that we're used to seeing do football, right? They're, you know, playing baseball as well. But, you know, at this time of year, we're starting to look ahead to football. Is this, is this a network that is trying to cram, uh, you know, football talent, if you will, or a football structure in the golf? Well, I mean, I would say they were more guilty of that the first year when they had that Kurt Menefee guy who didn't realize that uh, that there were tee times. He thought you could just sort of go play whenever you wanted to. And uh, the one, that was the, when that happened the first day. Somebody got hurt the first day of the first Open they did a couple of years ago, and Kurt goes, well, I hope he can get out there sometime tomorrow. And it doesn't work that way, Kurt. It's not sometime tomorrow. It's the tea time or it's no time. And Weisskopf uh, was left dangling, working with Menifee. He wasn't able to do as good a job as he might otherwise have. And, and, I, and I knew Greg Norman was going to find it difficult because, you know, when Greg used to do his own tournament, the Shark Shootout, he would... Uh, he would come up to the booth for 15 minutes and it was nice and easy to do and he didn't have to spend any time or prepare anything and they teed up the questions and it was his tournament so he was happy to do it and uh and i said to a lot of people and i said it on facebook i said he's going to hate this because he has no idea what it's like to do long form where you're sitting there for six or eight hours and you got to keep thinking of things to say and I knew he wouldn't do his homework, and he didn't do his homework, and he couldn't think of anything to say. And, you know, when Dustin Johnson missed that, you know, got over that four-footer that, you know, that, that cost ended up costing him the championship to Jordan Spieth, Greg couldn't think of anything to say. And, you know, there's a thing about television that, you know, there's some people to whom that time that they're on TV is their best thinking of the day where they do think of exactly the right thing to say. I, I would say Faldo generally has great moments on television and thinks of the right thing to say. I would say Brandel Chambly does. I would say Jimmy Nance does. I would say that I did. But I see very few people, you know, in these telecasts who are thinking of the right thing to say next. It's become very cliched. And, um, you know, so, yeah, so with Greg in the long form, that was disaster, Bill. So they got rid of him and they've made some changes. But Joe Buck and Joe Buck's a really good player. He shoots in the 70s. So I don't know what the, uh, you know, why 
why why he's why he's not as good at this as he ought to be. I like Azinger. Curtis is fine, but not great. Uh, Brad Paxson is fine, but not great. Holly Sanders just things don't because she's another one that she can't think of the right next thing to say. You know, I know she's got a list of questions in front of her. I would have killed myself before I ever had a list of questions in my hand. And, and you know, she's got a list right there in her hand of the next thing to say. But if the answer that comes from the player is not the answer that she knew was coming, she couldn't, as you would in a natural conversation, just say the natural next thing. It doesn't come to her. And it's very distracting, and she's, you know, wearing very odd clothing for a golf tournament. She looks like she's going to some kind of a crazy party, and her dresses are a little over the top. And I'm sure she's a very nice young woman, and <clears throat> she was she was a much better fit at the golf channel, where she didn't have to do much except sit there and smile and laugh and say, aren't these guys great? And, and she was fine at that, but... You know, once she had to do some thinking, it became very, very, very difficult for her. And I feel bad for her because they've got her in a role that she's not suited for. So that's that's tough. And, uh, you know, she's going to be interviewing guys today that she never heard of. And the reason I know that is because I never heard of them. So if I never heard of them, she never heard of them. And if she never heard of them, you never heard of them. So it's like, who are these people? So uh, I think they've got their work cut out for them uh, big time. And. I don't think they've made the strides that they ought to make. But in fairness to them, this is this is a, it's a long slog. You're on, you know, eight hours a day, and it's a ten. It's you know, it's hard to stay sharp, you know, for that many hours straight. And they don't have any superstars to commentate on. I mean, how many times are they going to tell the Phil Mickelson story about his daughter's graduation? You know, you just, you know, at some point. <laughs> You know, you run out of material, and and these guys who are on the leaderboard, most of them don't have resumes of any kind. So, you know, it's 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 going to be tricky for a staff that's inexperienced and not so good to do a good job with. They don't they don't have Broadway material. They've got out of town material to to deal with, and I and and it's unfortunate because great players make it easier for announcers to be great announcers, but. When you've got to dig it out of the dirt, you know it's 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 going to be tricky. So I uh, I don't envy them their job. Peter, switching gears and just a couple more before we let you go. I had Guy Burrows on the show earlier today. His father, obviously Julius Burrows, Hall of Famer, wanted to yeah, get you, your thoughts and memories about Julius Burrows. Oh, uh, Julius was uh, was a piece of work. You know, he won the '52 Open. U.S. Open, and uh, he was an accountant before, uh, almost full-time before he became a player full-time, and he had uh, rheumatic heart, and he was told when he was a teenager to uh, really take it easy, and so he became the easiest going guy, basically, in the history of golf. And, uh, of course, he beat Arnold in the playoff in 63 at uh, the country club with Jackie Cupid in the threesome. And he beat Arnold at the PGA Championship. I remember it very well. Julius had a one-shot lead playing behind Arnold, who was on the 72nd hole. I think it was at Pecan Valley in San Antonio. And 
Arnold was in the woods and hit three iron to eight feet, uh, literally in the woods and literally hit three wood to eight, uh, three wood to eight feet and never touched the hole, missed the putt. And then Julius just um, hit a second shot short of the last green and chipped up to four feet and made the putt to beat Arnold. And he used to call Arnold my pigeon. And in the 1965 uh, Ryder Cup, which was played at Royal Birkdale in England, Byron Nelson was the captain of the U.S. side and Julius Burroughs was on the team. And uh, Byron said that he, Byron, would sit downstairs every night waiting for Julius to come down because he knew he'd be wearing the wrong outfit. And he said and Julius would come down and he'd see Byron sitting in the chair and Byron wouldn't say anything, and Julius wouldn't say anything, and then Julius would turn around and go back upstairs and go get himself into the right outfit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, of course, he won the PGA at the age of 48. He had that great book, Swing Easy, Hit Hard, that was very, very successful. Uh, you know, he was uh, a terrific player for a long time. He was good on U.S. Open courses. You know, he won three majors. He won two U.S. Opens and the PGA. And uh, you know, he was uh, he was unflappable. And I and I and I saw him hit balls um, in the '60s. And you know, and he just start that downswing so slow and so syrupy. And uh, he see, he's probably one of the underrated players. You know, having multiple majors. You know, if you go back through time, you know, two U.S. Opens and a PGA is pretty hot stuff. Once you've got to three, you're pretty cool. And uh, he was pretty cool. And he was, uh, according to everybody on tour, basically the most relaxed person in the history of the world because he was told if you don't relax as a teenager, you've got a, you've got a heart that'll snap on you. And, and he, he hung in there. So, Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with, you know, all the great things you're doing and, uh, you know, check out your podcast if you decide to continue that and stay up to date with, uh, you know, what might be coming next with, with respect to the book project. Um, well, my podcast, you can easily just find if you just go just go to peterkessler.com because you don't, you don't have to go to any of the other sites, and you can find my podcast right at the bottom of the page. It's called Reading the Break, and they're only seven to ten minutes long. And uh, you can... Uh, I, I, I'm writing, I'm working on my book right now. I try to engage on Facebook quite a lot. I put up a post this morning saying this looked like an opposite field event, and a lot of people write in and have differing opinions. I have found out on Facebook that it's not good to say anything about Trump one way or the other. People go absolutely. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. There was somebody put up a post the other yesterday about Trump, and uh, and I basically said that I thought Trump was an idiot and the worst person that, that's ever held office in the history of this country. And people started writing in your left wing, tree hugging liberal, and I said. I never said I liked Obama. I never said anything about Hillary. I'm just saying that Trump is not the right man for the job. And people just get on your case and call you a loser and point out things in your career that, you know, didn't go. I mean, it's absolutely the, mo the most incredible lightning rod when that name comes up. And, of course, the women are playing... <coughs> You know, on his course, and the men are scheduled to play another event on one of his courses, and 
he's playing more golf than Obama, and he said he wasn't going to play golf at all. I played golf with him, actually, about 20 years ago, because he was going to come do the Golf Channel show, the Golf Channel show with me, and I played with him up in New York. Now, this was probably 1999 or 2000, and he could not have been nicer. He definitely broke 80. He definitely did not cheat. He was a really gracious host. Yeah, he talked about himself, and yeah, he talked about girls, but it was totally normal stuff. There was nothing where you, you know, were like the things that he said during the campaign that that took people by surprise. You know, he just he was just a normal guy, and he hit the ball a really long way. Probably shot seventy seven or something like that. He wasn't a he wasn't a two, but but he wasn't he wasn't a ten either. And uh, and I quite liked him at the time. I tried to I've tried to like him this time, but he's he's making it very difficult. Well, Peter, it, there's you know, and I've said this many times that you've been on the show, but there's no better way to spend a Saturday morning than to listen to you share your stories and your insights. I can't thank you for being generous with your time with me again today. But uh, you know, like I say, no matter how many times I get to spend with you, it just never feels like it's enough. Whether it's 20 minutes, it's 45 minutes, or an hour. I could sit and listen to you tell stories all day long. You're fantastic. Well, I appreciate it, and it's good to be with you. And I just hope, you know, uh, you know, you may need to, you know, make an emergency call to me after this tournament is over because the two of us could be the only two who could prop the thing up. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be looking for your phone call real soon after the tournament's <laughs> over, dude. Well, I'm rooting hard for Jordan Spieth, like you, as you alluded to. I hope he shoots 65 today. And we've got yeah, a, that uh, would a that would change everything. Tomorrow. Yep, I'm hoping for that. Yeah, Peter, thanks again. Weekend, All the buddy. best to you and your family, my friend. Yeah, same to you, buddy. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. Same to you. Thanks, bud. That's the that's the great Peter Kessler, the voice of golf. And folks, it just doesn't get any better than Peter. And you know, fingers crossed that this you know this book uh, gets picked up by the publisher because it's going to be a, a fantastic read. And if you haven't checked out his uh, his podcast yet, go to peterkessler.com or go to our site, nextonthetea.net, because we've got it uh, right there for you to listen to as well. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of the show. But before we close up shop, we always like to remind you about our friend PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Here's a reminder about what they're all about. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, they do amazing things there at the Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Guy Burrows, Ben Wright, Cheryl Fink, and Peter Kessler 
for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you enjoyed it half as much as I did, then we're doing a good job. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook next on the T with Chris Mascaro. I love your feedback, your thoughts, your questions. You know, for any of our, uh, you know, our current guests, our future guests, please let us know. If you've got a question, we'll be glad to get it on the air for you. You can see who some of our future guests are going to be by going to our site next on the T.net. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari. That show airs live every Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Ready. You can also hear it you know, online, whether you go to our site to stream it. And you, can stream it you, know, our, you can stream it live. You can stream it as a podcast. You can also find it as a podcast over on Podbean and over at our good friends over on TuneIn.com as well. On Thursday Night Tailgate, our sister show, we're joined every week by NFL legends sharing their stories about their playing days and insights into today's game as well. Plus, we highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. Please, folks, you can find us online, nextonthetea.net, thursdaynighttailgate.com. We appreciate you listening so very much. It means a great deal to us. Thank you again for choosing to listen to this show today. We know you got thousands of shows and podcasts that you can listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the Tee one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love. From the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.